0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, after a week of searching, what hope is there of finding the people who've gone missing since Turkey's earthquakes?
2: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
1: Hatay, which is in southern Turkey, was a province known for its outstanding beauty and diverse culture.
3: It's got an incredible history. There's Roman ruins, ancient synagogues, ancient churches, uh, one of Turkey's last thriving Armenian communities. It's a place that's known for its diversity and its multiculturalism where you find lots of different sects and types of people living together. People that have spent time there just talk about how incredibly special Hatay is as a place. And equally, people that are from Hatay will talk about how it's a place where the government in Ankara can often feel quite remote. Ruth Michelson has
1: been travelling around Hatay province and into northern Syria to see how the two earthquakes which hit last Monday have reshaped these places and the people who called them home.
3: So we're in the centre of Samada. The destruction that we are looking at, its it's very difficult to describe. There is rubble. It's... Almost as tall as the buildings around it, collapsed buildings.
1: Samunda is a town around 125 miles away from the epicentre of the earthquakes. Eight days on, and the dust from the buildings that collapsed still hangs thickly in the air. It's still unclear how many people are missing and how many are dead. We're looking
3: at across the street, there is a we're looking at what looks like the at least a three-storey home, two two of them, if not more, completely collapsed, raised to the ground. You can see someone's curtains and the tree that used to be in front of their house, in plastic chairs, and it is, it is rubble, I mean there is nothing, complete destruction.
1: It was two days before rescue workers got through to this area. Too late to offer much hope.
3: And I'm yet to meet anyone here with any expectation that most of the people they're finding will be pulled out alive.
1: Alongside the sadness and the grief that people are going through, there's another growing emotion, and that's anger anger that the rescue efforts came so late, an anger at a government that people say is trying to absolve itself of responsibility.
2: And the biggest question here is, will we receive enough funding and investments over this district to get the process done? And people are simply hopeless about this at this point. We still had to do it all by ourselves, and we're not rescuers. We're just people living in the town, not knowing a thing about how to pull bodies out of the earthquake. I mean, we don't want to lose the hope, but pessimism is a little stronger at this point.
1: From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus. The Lasting Aftermath of the Earthquakes. Ruth Michelson, you're a journalist based in Turkey and we spoke last week when the earthquake had just hit. When we last spoke to you, the emergency services had confirmed that around 2,000 people had died in this disaster. The number is now more than 15 times that. Do we
3: have a clearer idea of, of just how big this has been? I actually think that it's quite difficult to fully understand the scale of this, even a week later. Like we are talking about an area of destruction just in Turkey that would span something like the distance between Belgium and Amsterdam. It's enormous. It's not just... How the destruction looks, which is, I think I keep using the word apocalyptic, but in terms of the human loss and displacement, in Turkey, the death toll just keeps climbing. As of two hours ago, the death toll stands in Turkey and Syria at over 34,000 people. The expectation is that the full death toll will be much higher. So the vice president, Fuente Oktay, alluded to the idea that over one million people have been displaced. But I just think that one million has to be quite far off the real numbers. We're talking about large cities, Gaziantep, very near the epicenter. There's several million people in that city and it's, not a lot of them are there. They can't go back to their homes. People across southern Turkey, are afraid to go back into their own homes, even if their homes are still standing. Yes,
1: yeah, so when you when you look at the footage of the destruction, buildings completely collapsed or standing, but in a absolutely shaky way. And one of the things that's coming out of this is just how poorly constructed some of these buildings have been, even though they're on a major fault line. I know that the Turkish authorities have issued arrest warrants for some of the people in charge of those constructions. What's happened with that?
3: We saw over the weekend that Turkey arrested 100 people who they said were responsible for buildings that were not up to code. If you speak to Turkish analysts, for example, what they'll say is, well, this is a version of a discussion we've had after every earthquake, that Turkey lays on two major fault lines And there needs to be an expectation that you have to construct buildings in a certain way to be prepared for this, because the earthquake is not what will kill you, it's buildings falling on you that will kill you. And rather than having a discussion about the structures and the permits and the government permission for buildings, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, they are a party that has been all about construction over they 20 years in power. And we saw that in the response to this earthquake. Erdogan gave a speech in Karaman Marash near the epicentre, two days after the earthquake. And in this speech, he said, we are going to rebuild every single house that fell in this earthquake within a year.
2: Our target is to rebuild in one year
3: and we will start construction of new houses in all those 10 cities to make sure nobody's without a shelter. It'll take some time to build those buildings, of course. This idea that you can just wipe it away and you can build quickly again, that doesn't sound very reassuring. How have
1: the efforts to rescue people been going in Turkey so far?
3: It's been very moving to see the number of people who have volunteered or flown in. We spoke to people in Hatay in particular. There was a man that I spoke to who ran a DIY shop and the first earthquake happened and the first thing he did was go into his shop and get all of this equipment and then run to different homes and try and use it to get people out. And I spoke to people who tried to dig out their relatives from their homes. I mean, it's not just having to dig out your relatives. I interviewed a family who said we had to drive their bodies to the morgue ourselves because there was no one else to take them.
2: And then the second day, we went to the morgue to get their death certificates and their autopsy results. But because the place is full of dead bodies, I mean, we weren't able to find them. We searched for their corpses within corpses, like, for an hour. And then we found two of them. And since, again, there is nothing to carry them back to the grave, we put them back... Into our cars and then took them to the grave to bury them.
3: So there is a lot of anger towards Turkey's official disaster relief agency, Afad. And most people that we have spoken to, their first thing is to say they showed up too late. We could hear people under the rubble for the first 24 hours. I heard my friend's voice. I stood next to the rubble. I could call back to them. By the time Afad showed up on the second day, we couldn't hear them. They were dead. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm starting to lose count of how many people have told me some version of that story. And, of course, if you have had that experience, you're furious at the government. I mean, it's it's, it's impossible not to be. So we were on a road outside of the town Salanda in Hatay, and suddenly this man walked up to me and he seemed furious. He just really wanted to explain to the outside world the kind of injustice that he felt had happened. His wife, Nasreen, her family home was in Samandan, and it was a beautiful, green-painted house, and her parents, Ibrahim and Nazenye, had always lived in that house. They heard that the earthquake had happened.
2: Our family's member called us, we have because They
3: jumped in their car, they drove from Ankara to the south of Hatay, which is across the country. It's a long drive in the hope of finding Nesrin's parents alive. And when they got there, they realized that that was very unlikely.
2: So we came here and we saw that everywhere is damaged, everywhere is, uh, is broken. We found my uh, father's now we, we expect to uh, we expect to how um, come out from house you're now.
3: try oh yes, they're trying we- to pull him out of the rubble right now right yes, of course uh, how long has he been so
2: 5 days we expect the help from, from government we couldn't reach any, anyone so it's really it's a, a chaotic situation now so
3: each- the thing that he kept talking to me about was If the phones worked, if I could just use the internet consistently, it wouldn't fix this. But I would be able to be in control of fixing it in a different way.
2: Because I cannot call anyone. You couldn't call anyone.
3: There are people that were using Twitter to tweet that they were under the rubble. And at one point, the government blocked Twitter for a few hours. It's a crisis.
1: You need to be able to communicate. And of course, getting rescue teams into northwest Syria is a little more complicated. How have the rescue efforts been going there?
3: When we arrived in Idlib yesterday and I met some of the White Helmets, they are a volunteer but trained team that is spread across northwest Syria. And they were trained to pull people out from the rubble underneath Russian and Syrian airstrikes. They said the first phase is over. We believe that we have accounted for everybody that is still underneath the rubble. Idlib was already a profound humanitarian crisis. We met people who their village had been attacked by the regime of Bashar al-Assad and they had fled to Idlib. So they were already IDPs, internally displaced people. They were living in Houses that were empty at the moment. It was just it was bare concrete. And then the earthquake happens and their houses are, are crushed and there were piles of rubble. And they're then living in tents on a hillside with nothing. We watched a father who had lost his wife and two of his children hold his young baby daughter who was crying and he cried. And I will never I will never forget that. In the days after
1: the earthquakes, some people who were forced to leave their homes were sleeping in their cars with their families in southern Turkey. Since then, have any rescue centres been set up for people to stay in?
3: There have been some. And the government has now started to say, we will open up university accommodation. We're going to... Remove students from university accommodation and instead people displaced by the earthquake will stay there, which doesn't necessarily seem to be the most popular policy for a number of reasons. Erdogan said two days after the earthquake, We're not going to allow our citizens to sleep on the street. But what we've seen overwhelmingly is that people are, I mean, it's freezing in parts of Turkey. When I was in Guxen, I think it was probably about minus 10. And I was interviewing families where we were stood next to their cars and they would take turns to sleep in the car and they would run the heating. There are people sleeping in the open under these covered markets that are meant to be for selling fruit and vegetables and burning fires in the open, trying to keep themselves warm. In... Samandar in Hatay, I spoke to a family and they said, well, we are worried about looters. This has been a sort of big discussion in Turkey. It's the criticism from the state of people looting without any kind of discussion of, well, they're not stealing TVs necessarily. They're taking food. And in this situation,
1: both for people in Idlib and in southern Turkey, you know, we're a week on if people's relatives and friends are missing i'm sure many of them have given up hope of of finding them alive it's more a case of hoping that their bodies are recovered but there are some stories coming out of people who are being pulled out alive right
3: there are there've been some there've been some miracles there's five different parts of the country where people have been pulled out from the rubble alive even We're talking over 100 hours into this. So there's a man, uh, Izet Bakir, 47 years old, pulled from the rubble of a five-storey building in Hatay. There was a couple in Antakya, a major city in Hatay. Also in Antakya, a woman named Selma Gunez, found alive. There were people pulled out in Karaman Marash, in Gaziantep. And it is, it's incredible. They make the traffic stop because they want to call to them and to kind of tap very lightly on the rubble. And so there's just a big crowd of people standing around a building, silently watching and hoping. You're thinking about what it means to be alive and breathing and what it means for that person.
1: as you told us, Turkey is on two major fault lines and there have been in the past some horrific earthquakes. In 1999, there was one in Izmit in the east of the country. Choppers overhead, crumbled homes,
3: muddy streets. It's the aftermath of the worst earthquake in Turkish history.
1: How did the government respond then? What kinds of things did they put in place after that to try and say, look... You know, we're trying to protect you from
3: this level of destruction happening again. So the 1999 earthquake was, until last week, Turkey's largest natural disaster. The government put in place effectively an earthquake tax that is supposed to go towards disaster relief after an earthquake. The estimate is that the government has collected around £3.8 billion sterling equivalent since 1999. And there have understandably been questions about where on earth has that money gone? Because citizens do not feel they are seeing the benefits of it right now. The other consequence of the 1999 earthquake is that it changed Turkey politically. At that time, the JHP, the Republican People's Party, now the largest opposition party, then the government. Their response to the earthquake was considered severely lacking and people were furious because they felt here was this overarching, overbearing state that said they'd take care of us and then this enormous tragedy happens. Turkey at the time was a country where infrastructure was really lacking and housing was really lacking and this all kind of coalesced and it brought Erdogan to power in 2003 20 years ago, Erdogan came in and said, I'm going to build this country up. We will be organized. We will protect you. And this is where the AKP's promises of essentially build, build, build came from. And it was meant to be the sign that the state was there. The state is going to give you what you want. Don't worry about it. Don't criticize, but don't worry about it. And now, here is Another enormous earthquake.
1: How has what's happened with regards to his response to these earthquakes, how has that affected the way that people see him as a leader?
3: Well, first of all, I think we have to focus a little bit on the fact that some of the hardest hit areas, Karaman these are places where Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party get 75 plus percent. In elections, they are AKP strongholds. You know, it, it's just hard to imagine, no matter how popular any politician is in an area, if there's been a disaster of this scale and the government doesn't show up for two days in some cases, I don't think there's anything you can really do to get people to forget that. Has he accepted that his government has any responsibility for this? So far, what we've seen is an effort to sort of talk about this was unforeseen. We could not have prepared for something on this scale. And in a sense, that is true. But what they can be in control of is the response. And on that level, I think it's very reasonable for people to be angry and to ask questions. There's a clip of him telling a woman that had survived the earthquake in Parchaluk that this was fate. And actually, what he also said was... What happens, happens. Instead of talking about delays in the emergency services showing up, which is really what people are understandably furious about because that is literally the difference between life and death, we've seen this effort to push blame onto individuals working within a corrupt system of building contracts. And it's not necessarily that those people are not responsible. It's that we're talking about their role within a much wider state system that was very freely handing out building contracts and where there wasn't necessarily a lot of incentive for them to build every building up to code.
1: Coming up, after years of sanctions on Syria, are Western leaders going to have to negotiate once again with Bashar al-Assad? Ruth, in the area of northwest Syria that's been so badly damaged by this earthquake, as you mentioned, it's not under the control of the Syrian government. What's the response been like from the president, Bashar al-Assad? The Assad
3: government has tried to project an image that they are also in control of the response, that they are going to help areas in the north around Aleppo. There's also been What would certainly appear to be an undercount of the true number of dead and missing, because the number feels, unfortunately, very low. As well as this kind of opacity around the two figures, there's also been disinformation, basically. People that I spoke with yesterday in Idlib were also furious that there were images of two young girls who had been pulled out from the rubble there. And apparently the government in Damascus had used these images and said that they were in Aleppo and they've been rescued there. Again, to say, we're in charge, we can save you, the state's here to help. And there's also, for that reason, been some discussions around aid, that the Assad regime says, let us be in charge of the aid effort. And naturally, people in northwest Syria, they fear this because if on the extremely unlikely chance that the Assad regime would be allowed to be the primary deliverer of aid, that... They wouldn't ever see any. Does this mean that
1: international leaders are having to negotiate with Assad, you know, after years of putting sanctions
3: on him over the civil war? In the past, the the international community have been very reluctant to even consider the idea of providing the Assad regime with the tools to rebuild from the civil war. And that is the context in which this aid discussion happened. But at the same time, the U.S. has now exempted aid for Syria to deal with the other effects of the earthquake from sanctions. But how that aid will be distributed, what that will mean in practice, I think we're likely to see some problems there if it's consistent with what's happened in the past. In northwest Syria, in the last rebel-held province, I met with the head of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, uh, Mohammed al-Jalani, yesterday. This is a man with a 10 million US dollar bounty on his head a man that was formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda. Jolani said to me himself, the UN needs to help us, a man that previously said that he would never accept help from America or any of its allies, is now saying we need outside help. What level of aid is coming from abroad? It's been an incredible effort. We've seen rescue workers from all over the world come in. We're seeing just a mammoth scale of people showing up here to try and distribute food and blankets and water and just basic things to get people back on their feet. People need these things now, but it's not too soon to start thinking about what does this mean in the long term. And I think aid agencies and I think also the Turkish government are overwhelmed by the scale of this problem.
1: And in the UK, there are around half a million people of Turkish heritage and tens of thousands of Syrians. And looking on at this, is just such a worrying time, isn't it? You know, we've been speaking to people who've been mobilising to collect food, nappies, tents and money, anything they can to send over there. For people looking on at this
3: crisis, what's the best way to help? I think it's clear from the situation on the ground that people desperately need help. And we see, quite understandably, people desperately wanting to donate. And I think in these times, we want to have a sense of confidence about where we're donating to. So just a couple of suggestions, although these are by no means exhaustive. I know that giving to the Red Crescent is always likely to be effective. In Turkey, certainly. In the past, I've advised people to donate to the White Helmets who are working in northwestern Syria. And I know that the group Inara has set up a rapid response in terms of helping people in both Turkey and in Syria. They have done some really good work on the ground in Lebanon, and they're trying to use that experience in Turkey and Syria now. They're are a range of charities out there. Ruth, thank you so
1: much. Thank you. That was Ruth Michelson. You can read her reporting and that of the rest of The Guardian's team in Turkey and Syria at theguardian.com. We've put links to the charities Ruth mentioned in the show notes for today's episode, which was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Alex Atak, with production support by Sami Gedgesoiler. Sound design was by Adam Bransbury, and the executive producer was Hummer Khalili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?